Can I get you to turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 2? Revelation chapter 2, on page, well, you've got these big Bibles with a green dot, it's page 1029. Revelation chapter 2, on your way in, you were given uh, some handouts, and on one of them, on the inside of that handout, there's an outline. Uh, helpful to have that outline in front of you as well. Uh, there are pencils, if uh, it helps you concentrate to take notes, um, but the outline's there. Um, but Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at verses 12 to 17. You know what it's like, don't you, when the boss calls you into his office and he wants to give you feedback? Uh, depending on the kind of person you are and the kind of boss you have, uh, that can be a very useful thing or a very traumatic thing, uh, or both at the same time. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is giving feedback to his church. But it's not just take it or leave it feedback. It's not just advice. Jesus rules his church. The church belongs to him. Doesn't belong to you, doesn't belong to me, doesn't belong to the pastoral team. The church belongs to Jesus. It's his church. He is the head, we are the body. He is the Lord, we are the people. And every church, every single church without exception, is ruled and will be judged by Jesus. It's his church. And so when Jesus comes to speak to his church, this is a very serious thing. He rules his church by his spirit through his word. And in these opening chapters of Revelation, Jesus speaks directly to seven of his churches. He sends a message that is specific for each one of them. And you can see how he rules his church through each of those messages. But in the symbol-heavy book of Revelation, seven is also the number of completion, of perfection, of wholeness. And so the fact that he sends the message to seven churches indicates that, that taken together, this is a message for the whole church, for all the churches. And so what Jesus says to us here at Smack and St. Mary's is, is here within these seven letters. We won't be exactly the same as the church in Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira or Sardis or Philadelphia or Laodicea, but there will be lessons for what Jesus is saying to each of them for our teaching, our encouragement, our rebuke, and the Spirit is still speaking to us as we hear what Jesus says to them. And what Jesus says to these churches, the Spirit says to all the churches and applies to us. And so today, what we've prayed for is that God would give us ears to hear the Spirit's voice. As it says in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, not just to the church in Pergamum, but to the churches. Now, as we consider the message to the church in Pergamum, we're spending, a fine, we're spending a couple of minutes just to find out a little bit about the town. Pergamum, like the other seven churches, is in what is now part of Turkey. And it was a center for pagan religions, a number of pagan religions. One of the most popular was the worship of the god Asel, I always get this. Aslepius. Aslepius. Okay, Aslepius. Uh, which was associated with healing uh, and with the symbol of a serpent. There was also a big altar to Zeus that was prominent in the city. Uh, but most importantly for our purposes, 
Pergamum was a center of the worship of Caesar, the emperor. And it was a center of Caesar worship for the whole province. It had a temple there for Caesar worship. And the town proudly proclaimed itself as the temple warden for that temple. People were expected in the normal course of society and business to pay homage to Caesar. And so there would have been a lot of pressure for Christians to comply. Failure to do so would be considered treason. Now listen to what Jesus says to his people in that situation. He starts, as he does in each of his messages, by describing himself in some way, in a way which echoes what we saw of him back in chapter 1. And in verse 12, he describes himself as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember where we saw that before, isn't it? Right, back in chapter 1, verse 16. And when you go back in chapter 1, verse 16, where's that sword on Jesus? In chapter 1, verse 16, the sword comes out from his mouth. Yeah, it's from his mouth. He's not holding the sword in his hand. It's coming out from his mouth because the sword is his word, isn't it? And we see other Bible writers using the same kind of imagery. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter uh, 6 calls the, the sword of the Spirit the, the Word of God. Uh, the next slide, we'll have it there. Next slide. Yeah, okay. Uh, our, and, or the writer of the Hebrews uh, says the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, the next slide, the sword is to slay people. Uh, next slide. Thank you. Okay. Uh, later on, you see swords in Revelation slay people. Uh, in 6 verse 4, people slay. Uh, 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 people are slain with a sword. Or in chapter 6 verse 8, people slay each other with a sword. They kill each other. In chapter 13 verse 10, um, uh, the enemies of God slay his people with a sword. Right? And in chapter 19, chapter 19 on the next slide, when Jesus steps on the scene, we see him with that sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. And what does he do with it? He strikes down the nations. He rules them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. In other words, he brings them judgment under God's wrath. And his enemies are slain with this sword that comes out of his mouth. Right? So sword in Revelation, dangerous stuff. Right? Now, again, this is not literal, isn't it? Right? When Jesus comes with a sword coming out of his mouth, he's not going, you know, when he comes again, he's not going to go, kill people. Right? It's not talking about that. Right? He's saying he's bringing people to judgment by his word. Right? The God who created the universe with a word brings the nations to judgment by speaking a word. And Jesus, who brings the whole world into judgment by his very word, has a word for the church in Pergamum. Right? So better listen up, huh? What does he do? What does he say? Well, he begins with a word of encouragement. Uh, he says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He knows that it's hard being a Christian in Pergamum. He says, I know. I understand. I know you live in the center for Roman rule and emperor worship. And so symbolically, Satan has his throne in the city. I know about all the pressure you face to, to, to comply with the worship of Caesar and all the temptations to worship all these other gods as well. I know all about the threats to your business, to your children's education, to your freedom, even to your lives if you refuse. I know. I know it's tough. I know where you dwell. And yet, Jesus continues in verse 1, Yet you hold fast to my name. 
And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. These guys had it tough, didn't they? These guys have faced the kind of persecutions that most of us have never had to face. Now, there are some of us here who, who, who might have faced something like this, but most of us haven't. At least one of them, Antipas, had been killed for belonging to Jesus. And yet the church held fast to the name of Jesus. They did not renounce the faith. They did not deny their Lord. They held on. And Jesus says, I know and I commend you. He calls Antipas his faithful witness. That's a huge compliment because in, in, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, Jesus himself is the faithful witness. And notice that Jesus, the Lord of his church, knows the name of the man in Pergamum who was willing to die for him. He knows. And he singles him out. He says, this is my faithful witness. He notices. As I look around in our situation here, I don't think we're living in a situation that's quite like Pergamum, at least not yet. Except for believers who come from a particular background, the rest of us have it relatively easy in Malaysia. Though we don't know how long that will last. We have issues with the Bible and other Christian literature in Bahasa. It's a dry for hooded law. It seems to be a shift in mentality among many to have some kind of support for it. And while we enjoy our freedoms here, our brothers and sisters in the underground church face all kinds of persecutions. And we don't know the future. We had to pray for peace in our country. We had to work for goodwill and understanding. But it's not all up to us. And the day might come when we face social, economic, or even physical peril for following Jesus and being obedient to him. You prepared for that? Will you be people to whom Jesus is able to say, you held fast to my name. You did not deny my faith. Well, in spite of the fact that the church in Pergamum was faithful on this big issue, Jesus still has something to reprimand them for. Not because he hates them, but because he loves them. They're his church, they're his faithful church. But they've let him down in one way. Here it is in verse 14 to 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might, te- they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, who was Balaam and Barak? Well, we were introduced to them, weren't we, in our uh, Old Testament reading today. Uh, remember back in the days when Israel was on their way to the Promised Land? Uh, Balaam, he was a famous sorcerer. Uh, came from Mesopotamia, and Balak was the king of Moab. Uh, And we saw in our reading that Balak and the leaders of the Midianites got together to hire Balaam to curse Israel because he was afraid of them. 
Uh, but God spoke to Balaam and warned him not to. And, and Balaam knew that God was powerful. He didn't dare go against him. He said, even if Balak was to give me his house full of gold and silver, I can't go beyond the command of my Lord, the Lord my God. That, that's, that's, that, that's pretty good, isn't it? And if you read on, every time he was meant to curse them, he blessed them instead. And when Balak complained, he said, look, I told you, I can only speak what God tells me. That's, that's, that's quite impressive. This, this man fears God. And even when he's paid by the king of Moab, he only speaks God's word. That, that sounds, sounds like, a, like, a, like a true prophet. So, so, what's so what's so bad about Balaam here? Why is he the evil guy? Well, keep your bookmark in Revelation 2. Keep your bookmark in Revelation 2. And come with me to Numbers 25. Numbers 25. That's a few chapters after our reading this morning. And Balaam's given all his oracles. And the people of Israel, well, look what happens. Numbers 25, I'll read the first three verses. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And if you keep on reading, you'll see that, that, that God came against them in great judgment, brought a terrible plague on them, until one of the priests executed an Israelite man and a Midianite woman in the act of sexual immorality. And then if you go down to verse 18, uh, we, we see that God pronounces judgment on the Midianites because it says, they harassed you with their wiles which, which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor. Now hang on a tick. It looks like Israel didn't just fall into sexual immorality and idolatry. They were beguiled. They were trapped. They were, there was a... They were, these Midianites and the Moabites were, were getting together purposely in order to do that. They were purposely trying to seduce them, to draw them away from God. That's what they were doing. Because, because if they could drive a wedge between them and their God, then they could make them just like us. And then Israel be finished. And here's a trap that, the, that these, these, these guys set for them, and the Israelites just walked right into it. But what's that got to do with Balaam? Well, you keep reading. Go to chapter 31. Come to chapter 31. Because in chapter 31, God instructs Israel to execute his vengeance on the Midianites for doing it. He called the people of Israel to slaughter the people of Midian. And one of them who got caught up in that, verse 8, you see, they killed the kings of Midian and all these other the five kings, da, da, da. And it says in verse 8, they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Now, what was he doing with them? What was he doing with them? Well, go down to verse 16, uh, where they're talking about those the, the Midianite women. And he said, These on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. Do you see what's happened? Balaam knew he couldn't go against God directly. 
He knew that. He wasn't even going to try. And instead of directly opposing God's word, which he didn't dare to do, he conveyed it. But he is willing to take payment from Barak and the Midianites and advise them quietly on how to defeat God's people. And he advised them very cleverly to entice Israel to sin, to sexual immorality and idolatry. Israel sinned. They fell under God's judgment. So did the Midianites. So did Balaam. Now come back to Revelation chapter 2. Verse 14. Jesus says to his New Testament people, to the church in Pergamum, You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. See? Jesus saying, look, the church is a whole, it's holding fast to my name, but, but there's some of them, there's a group of them, who are holding to this false teaching, the teaching of Balaam. They are supporting the practice of idolatry and sexual immorality. They're committing to it. They're saying it's okay for Christians to engage in it. Food offered to idols, no problem. You can go to idols temple or participate in idol ceremonies because it's just showing respect for the culture you're in. Idols, nothing anyway, so it doesn't matter. And yes, the Jews might have had strict sexual ethics, but, but look, this is the first century. We've got to loosen up. Right? As long as it's consensual, it doesn't do any harm, it can actually be a beautiful, loving thing. And and they bring sexual immorality and idolatry into the church, just like Balaam taught Barak and his crew to bring it into Israel. And Jesus says, I have this against you. There are some of you who are holding this teaching. And also the teaching of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. Now we're not exactly told what the Nicolaitans taught, which means we don't need to know, isn't it? Possibly because it's very similar to what uh, the, the Balaam guys did, or because the Spirit only wants it, needs, needs us to know that they were unfaithful to the gospel and he wants us to focus on the state of sins of sexual immorality and idolatry. Either way, the two big warnings for us here are those, aren't they? Sexual immorality and idolatry. Now, as I look around our church, I'm happy to say that I don't see anyone actively promoting sexual immorality or idolatry. Well, I'm glad of that. In fact, I'm not personally aware of anyone in SMAC who is engaging in either of those two things. Now, it could be just be that I'm the last one to know about these things, <laughs> right? But as far as I know, that's not happening, and so I'm not talking about anyone in particular, but the Spirit knows, and He might be. Either way, listen to this, sexual immorality and idolatry have no place among the people of God. We cannot tolerate it, we cannot celebrate it, we cannot say it's okay, it's not. This church belongs to Jesus. And he says it's not okay. And we can't allow each other to engage in it and say that it is. Now if you ask me where you see the 
toleration and celebration of sexual immorality in the church today. Where do I see that? Well, I'll point you to liberal Anglicanism in the West. Now, it's not just an Anglicanism, it's in other denominations as well, but many have no issues with premarital sex, responsible non-monogamy, and same-sex relationships. There's certainly no thought of curbing it in the church. Some even advocate for it, promote, promoting uh, practicing homosexuals to high position in the church as a testimony of its acceptability. And what does Jesus say to his church here? Now, to be fair, it's, it's harder to, to, to follow this on, on, in the West because society pushes the church in that direction more than it does here. When same-sex marriage is recognized by law and you're considered a misguided, immoral, Stone Age bigot by society at large for not supporting it, then the pressure is enormous, isn't it? And churches think that unless they compromise on this issue, they will be irrelevant to society. Now, of course, there are many churches who are faithful, many who have not compromised in this area. Last year I went to a conference in Nairobi called GAVCON, or the Global Anglicans Futures Conference. It was a great conference because it brought together Anglicans from all different parts of the world who said we need to be faithful to Christ and his word and not be, not be subjected to what the society says. I met people from Africa who were going through terrible persecution for the faith, like the church in Pergamon. I met people from America. Uh, where churches had lost their buildings uh, and all their assets because they could no longer be part of a diocese which was blatantly promoting sexual immorality and even persecuting believers who wouldn't join them. Now imagine having to sell up, you know, say, okay, everything's gone, start again. Are you willing to do that? Because that's what it takes to be faithful, that's what it takes to be faithful. Uh, even here in Smack, we've got um, Gary and Diane, you're from a church like that in the States, weren't you? Yeah, go and talk to Diane afterwards. Uh, find out what it costs to stay faithful to Christ. So the Christians in the West who are holding fast to the faith, we salute them, we stand with them, and for those who are not, we pray that God would have mercy on them. But even as we point our fingers at the churches in the West, we, we need to realize that we are untested in this area. They are the ones living where Satan dwells, if you were as it were, in regards to, to sexual immorality. We live in a society that's by and large conservative on these matters, so it's relatively easy for us to hold fast to God's word on these matters, but it won't be forever. The teaching has and will come here as well. And then will we be faithful. In our society, the bigger problem is idolatry, isn't it? Uh, certainly bigger than in the West, and certainly the, at least a blatant God of other religions type of idolatry that we find in Pergamum. And the pressure's on us there. Whenever there's a family funeral, when it comes to Ching Bing, we're asked to burn joysticks and, and what, what are we going to do? Don't say, I'm just holding the joystick. Right? I'm actually praying to Jesus on the inside. If people in Pergamum said, I'm just burning incense in Caesar's temple, really not, means nothing, and just respect, I'm actually praying to Jesus on the inside, then they would have had no problem. Antipas needn't have died. Oh, friends, avoid sexual immorality, avoid idolatry. And if you're involved in any way, then please stop now before Jesus has to punish you.
And if you know a funeral is coming one day, you don't, don't wait till it comes before you work out what you can and can't do. Right? Figure it out now, before all the emotion and the pressure at the time. Right? Then stick to what you've worked out, what you've got to do. Right? If you, there's some useful books in the book corner uh, that deal with some of these matters. If you want to think it through, uh, go to the book corner uh, and ask Jessica for one of them. And if you have been engaged in any of these things, remember that Jesus died that you can be forgiven. Remember he shed his blood to take away your sin. Start all over again. But repent. Stop doing it. Well, having labeled the false teachings, Jesus addresses the church as a whole when he says in verse 16 to repent. Right? He's not just talking about those, to, to those who who are engaged in it, he's actually talking to the whole church. Look, look at that. He says in verse 16, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now notice this. He's saying to everyone, repent. If not, I will come to you, that is the church, and war against them, that is the people who engage in this, uh, who hold to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and war with them. In other words... When he's calling for repentance, he's not just calling to these people. He's calling the whole church. Why? Because he's saying you stop letting this happen in your church. Because, friends, we're not just responsible for ourselves. We can't say, I'm just being godly myself and I'm on my own business. My brothers and sisters do what they like and it's up between them and God. No, no, no. The whole church in Pergamon was called to repent for putting up with idolatry and sexual immorality. But then comes the warning and the threat. It's not to the church as a whole, but it's the ones holding the teaching. He says, I will come to you, the church, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's going to come with it. Remember that sword that brings judgment upon the world? Oh, it brings the people in the church to judgment first. Brothers and sisters, if we have those who are promoting sexual immorality and idolatry among us, it's not a loving thing to do to let them keep going, is it? It's not loving. Jesus will come to the church and bring judgment upon them. The loving thing to do is to urge them to repent and for us to repent of tolerating it. We shouldn't gossip about it, but we should call people to repentance for promoting it. It's better for God's people to help those in the church to repent than for them to have to face Jesus when he comes to his church. He who has an ear, Jesus says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Jesus ends his message to the church in Pergamon with a promise, in fact, two promises. The promises are, in verse 17, for the one who conquers. Now, I'm sure you've seen over the weeks past that the one who conquers is the one who is faithful to the end, isn't it? Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, coming up on the screen, uh, speaks of God's people when it says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they are loved, not their lives, even unto death. That is, they kept on being faithful to Jesus, and to his gospel, 
even unto death. Are you willing to die for Jesus? Be faithful to him no matter what. Now, of course, it's going to look different in different contexts. Right? In Pergamum, it's hoarding fast. Even in a place where the pressure to compromise is very big. In your situation, the pressures might be completely different. But whatever it is, you hold on to the gospel. Hold on to Jesus to the very end and be willing to die rather than forsake him. That's more important. And Jesus says, verse 17 again, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna. What's manna? Well, manna, you know, is the food that God gave his people, uh, Israel, when they were in the wilderness. He, he fed them supernaturally, didn't he? And when you are faithful to the end, Jesus says, I will give you manna. I will give you supernatural food. Right? It's picture, isn't it? It's picture language. Right? Uh, and he's promising a, a meal. A meal that he gives. Oftentimes in the Bible, the picture of the end is a is a makan, isn't it? Right? It's that's what it is. It's a, it's, uh, and this manna, it's a picture of fellowship. It, it, it's a picture of enjoyment. It's a picture of sustenance. And especially here, it's a picture of supernatural provision because manna is food that you don't grow, you don't cultivate. It's given by God. It's His gift, and you don't see that now. You don't see now the glories of sharing fellowship and table and being sustained in the meal. But with God, it's it's hidden manna. But on that day, you'll be revealed. And we feast together at the table in his kingdom with the food that he has provided. And the second thing that is promised to the one who conquers is, what is it? It's a white stone. A white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now what's a white stone? The word translated stone is a small, small, smooth stone Right? often used for voting. Right? It can also be translated voting pebble. Uh, it's only found in one other place in the New Testament, and that's coming up in Acts chapter 26, verse 10, uh, where Apostle Paul, when he was uh, uh, persecuting the Christians, he put many of them in prison, uh, and when they're put to death, it says, I cast my stone against them. I cast this, this, this thing against them. All right? Our translation have the word vote because uh, that's, that's what it was like. Um, in ancient trials, uh, you put the white stone, that means you're voting for acquittal. If you're voting, if you use a black stone, you're voting for guilty. Right? And Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will give him a white stone. I'll pronounce him not guilty. And of course, Jesus was the one, the counselor. But it's not just an acquittal that the conqueror receives, it's a personal acquittal. Remember he says, I'll put a white stone with new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Isn't that great? Because the, the not guilty verdict that Jesus secures for us, it's not, it's not just a mechanical thing. It's not just an impersonal thing. You're not just one of millions of believers who have made it to the end, so you all get the same thing, you know, just like a, like a sausage machine kind of fact. No, 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 no. Right? Jesus says, I give you a stone with a new name. I'm giving you this name. Remember how Jesus gave name to Abraham, gave name to Peter. He's giving name for you. A new name means a new identity, a new role, a new way of thinking about yourself, a new, a, a new life, and a guess, in a sense. Right? And you know what? It's so personal. It's so intimate. 
that you're the only one who knows it. And that is something that's just between you and Jesus. And Jesus is the one who takes the trouble to initiate it and to give it to you. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus here is speaking to churches, but he knows each one of us as individuals. He knows you and he loves you. He doesn't just have a plan for your life. He's got a plan for your eternity. He has a unique plan for your eternity. And it's a good plan. It's a plan that's just between you and him. And he will give you your new identity on the day he acquits you at the final judgment. So whatever happens, he says, you hang on. You keep being faithful to him until then. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, the church in Pergamum, they were heroes in Jesus' book. Don't even entertain the thought that we might be better than that. We've not been tested yet. These guys that have been through the fire, they've come out faithful. But in among them, they still had people who promoted sexual immorality and idolatry, and Jesus told them to repent. And if they didn't, he would come against the offenders and bring judgment on them. But those who remain faithful to him to the end will feed on his given feast at the kingdom. He will give them that verdict of not guilty. He will personally and intimately give them a new identity with their place in the new creation. These warnings and promises that we have seen today are not just for Pergamum alone, but for God's church. So he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the head of your church. You rule your church by your word. And we thank you that you have exercised that rule over us uh, through that word this morning. Thank you that you have encouraged us even as you encourage your church in Pergamum to remain faithful to you until the very end. And Lord, we pray that you help us to do that. And we pray especially for those among us who are facing persecution. Keep them faithful, we pray. Do not let them deny your name. And we pray that all of us would be ready to, to face whatever happens in the future. And Lord, we know that idolatry and sexual immorality are things that you do not want tolerated in your church. You've made that very clear to us. 
when we pray that if that is present among us that you'll bring us to repentance we pray that your spirit will be convicting hearts and we pray that we would look to Jesus who died for us for forgiveness and we would submit to him in his rulership over us when he commands us to turn away And Lord, we thank you for the promises of the future. We thank you for the riches of the blessings that you've promised us. If we hold fast to you. And so help us to do that, we pray. For your sake and your glory. Amen.